0: All right, well, welcome back to another episode of the Rational Faiths Podcast, another part in the never-ending series of Ask the Mormon Sex (laughs) Therapist with Dr. Jennifer finlayson Fife and Laurel. Please say hello! Hello! Hi! All right, so Jennifer, do you have any, uh, we normally announce your sales and stuff, do you have any other announcements coming up in the near future?
1: Oh, I'll just say this, I am going to be, I, I don't know the timing of this the release of this podcast and all that, but I'm going to be presenting in Seattle uh, an extended women's sexuality workshop, meaning I have my online course, but I'm actually going to be adding to it and doing a second edition of that course. So I'm going to be doing a live version of that in Seattle, April 7th and 8th, and then I will also be doing it in San Francisco and Salt Lake City live. San Francisco I will do in um, May, although I don't have the date on that yet, and then probably June for Salt Lake City. So it'll, it will I'll be talking about these issues of selfhood and perfectionism and our relationship to ourselves and our own desires more than I do in my current online course, and then I'm going to spend more time on sexual self-development. So that should be a really fun workshop. They always are
0: (laughs) That sounds great, so look forward to those dates uh, See if they uh, Coincide with your own calendars uh, If you are able To attend any of those So we uh, It wasn't in the recording But we kind of went back and forth about Asking one more question On the last episode And so we're going to address that question First um, Because we felt like it would take a little bit more time than what we had, and we had already recorded, uh, I don't know, 30 or 40 minutes by the time we got around to it for the last episode. So we're going to lead off with that question, too, and I believe in one of the comment sections of one of these episodes, uh, Jennifer, you had actually said, I will answer this question. So we're going to lead with that one. Uh, Laurel, can you read off question number one?
2: Sure. Here we go. Here is our question, I am the lower desire partner. I wasn't always, but my husband has had issues over the years with pornography and masturbation, as well as forcing himself on me when I have said no to sex. These issues started when things were going well, in my view at least, and continued for many years. I have withdrawn as a result, and he has approached sex in a purely lustful way that makes me feel objectified and awful. I don't always say no, but I honestly feel repulsed by it now after the challenges we have faced. He is doing better at being faithful after getting help from the bishop. I, however, have had no support in dealing with how it has all impacted me. I don't feel comfortable talking to the bishop about it, although he has never approached me about it. I feel like I would be betraying him to reach out to anyone we know to talk about it. I have brought up counseling. But he is offended that I want to go there and he has very negative opinions of marriage counselors. How can I get over these feelings of disgust and distrust so I can show up in my marriage sexually or emotionally at this point again? Okay,
1: good question. So um I don't know if it's in this person's interest, and I'm just gonna say you and you're to the to the person who asked the question. I don't know if it's in your interest to try and get over your feelings of disgust and distrust, because I think from the question, and there's pieces in it that I don't fully understand when you're saying he's doing better at being faithful, I don't know if you're referencing the pornography or if there's been infidelity, but um, I think you're having those feelings of distrust and disgust for a reason, um, and I think it's in your interest to address the reason. Right. I think it's in your interest to address your marriage and your sexual relationship and what's actually happening in it. Because from my read on the question, and of course I only have the information from the question itself and I don't have the spouse's view or, or more context in this question, but I think from the question, your low desire is your psychological and physical rejection of the meaning of your sexual relationship. Because I think the meaning in your sexual relationship um, and I think your husband is clear about it as expressed through his behavior, is that your sexuality exists for me. Right? We have sex when I want to have it, whether or not you want to have it. I do my sexuality in the way that makes me comfortable. And I don't care if you like it, and I don't care if you're interested. And so I, I think that's why you're saying you feel objectified, is that you get the meaning, which is you exist, to pleasure me. Um, um and so i think that your repulsion is your body rejecting your participation in that meaning frame and i think it is disgusting meaning uh david schnarsch whose work i follow closely says that you know neurobiologists and uh uh they're doing lots of work on the neurobiology of the brain and so on they aren't psychologists, actually. They're just studying the brain, have shown that cross-culturally and so on, that there is a autonomic disgust response that the brain has to moral disgust, that it's a universal response, um, that it's not um, wired in around cultural meanings. It's These are hardwired disgust responses that people have when they see something morally reprehensible. And you, I mean, the, the, there may be more context to this question that would perhaps make me see it more, uh, in a more nuanced way if I had the husband's perspective or more context to this question. But you, if it's in fact true that your husband is forcing himself on you when you don't want to be sexual and he's acting sexually in ways that, uh, um, that he, he's basically indulging his sexual impulses in ways that are reprehensible to you. I think you're having a natural response to his behavior. So, um, so I, I think um, you're. And then I would add to that that you're when you're looking for a counselor or the idea of getting help. I think the idea exists between you and your husband that your seeking of help is somehow a betrayal of him. Right? That's the idea that he wants to offer to you that somehow and, and you're accepting on some level. And I think that this is a kind of implicit agreement between you between the two of you that his desires and his comfort and the protection of his ego is primary. Your comfort, the protection of your feelings, your desires are not. So you see that he's the offender, but he deserves the protection in the way the two of you are talking about him getting help, your feelings. And I think it's important for you to think about why you accept or tolerate that idea. I'm not saying that you're happy with the idea but you are conflicted enough that you are participating in that idea or not standing up to it in a meaningful way. Um, all right, and then just the idea, I mean, just to kind of reinforce it, that you're bringing up counseling and he's offended by that, quote-unquote. Um, <clears throat> right, so, you know, he, he's trying to keep that idea alive that he's owed protection from you. Uh, and, and not trusting counselors is handy, the handy idea. I mean, how could anyone not trust a counselor, right? (laughs) Just kidding. But, you know, I think it's an easy idea for him because I think he doesn't want another observer in on what he is doing and what's going on between you. And I think the bishop is not doing good work, although I don't entirely blame him because he's not trained um, on these kinds of things, but he's sort of colluding in the idea that the husband has a sexual indulgence problem that he and the husband are going to solve together but not really looking at the way that uh, um, he's indulging a kind of entitlement in the husband by pathologizing his his pornography and the idea of a pornography addiction without really looking at the entitlement in his behavior. Uh, I'm not saying that the bishop should know how to do this, but he is indulging this kind of idea that he and the husband are going to work something out and that your feelings about this are secondary. So, um, I, I so I think just questions for you to think about is, I mean, how do you make sense of the fact that you have tolerated accommodating your husband's desires, even when they feel disgusting or repulsive to you, and that there's so little room for you and your desires? Um, I think. You know, how have you got it into your mind that that is somehow goodness? Because I don't think it's good for you to tolerate this behavior. I don't think it's good for your husband for you to tolerate it or prop it up in him. And I think if you have children, it's certainly not good for them to see you accommodate his entitlement. Because it teaches your children to either be tyrants or to be doormats of tyrants. And in either case, it is bad for the kids. And so, I mean, I think you're reaching out for help because you have, you're unclear about whether or not you have a right to have your position or a right to have your feelings. And um, it speaks to how um, deeply self-doubting you have learned to be around this. And, you know, how much you and your children and even your husband need your, strength to stand up to that uh to the uh, to the abuse of his position so that's my response i don't know if either of you
2: have thoughts or my only uh possible pushback was just yeah i was actually i'm just very unclear on the question exactly what her husband's working on with the bishop like it wasn't clear yeah right i agree that that was where I, I i have no idea if maybe even the bishop maybe the bishop wanted to meet with both of them and the husband said no you know <laughs> like yes that's right i just have no yeah just from the question it sounds like you know I, my yeah i was just curious if maybe the bishop might not even be the one like this is just a totally open like a sorry minute i mean, I'll go back i mean it just it could be completely open in my mind as far as if the bishop is trying to fix things or if the bishop even knows really the extent of what's going on. Yeah. Because definitely. it sounds like the narrative is being controlled. Yeah, um, you think
1: that's exactly right. That's right. And I think that's very likely that it's being controlled. And um, the wife is not coming in and challenging whatever narrative's in the bishop's minds. And I'm not saying she should. I, you know, I think it's up to her to have her privacy if she wants it. The one thing I would say I think often happens between men and bishops is there is an exposure that I sometimes see of how much we don't value intimacy, um, in a sense, in marriages. That we see, okay, the husband has a pornography problem. He has a sexual, sexual indulgence problem that can be worked out between him and the bishop and repenting and so on. And there's no need to involve the wife in that. And I'm not saying, hey, bishops need to start doing marriage counseling. I'm just saying there's a way in which it sort of reinforces this idea that it's okay to not let the wife in on that information. So I've certainly seen bishops participate in that with people. And then the wife is often left out of even knowing about it. And so the husband's looking at pornography and so on, not telling his wife, going and kind of purging his sin with the bishop. The bishop grants forgiveness or or whatever is in conversation with him. And there's not sort of a an, an understanding or a view that that is an intimate issue that needs to be worked out between the husband and wife, right? So I'm not sure if I'm being very clear about that, but it's something that gets a lot of wives upset, <laughs> and I can see why, right? It's, it's sort of collusion in the idea that the wife doesn't need to ha- be privy to that information, even though the husband and usually the bishop understand that she would want to be privy to it.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So I'm not I'm not trying to hang the bishop from a high branch on this. I, I just think that that's, and you're absolutely right that, that the husband is probably controlling the narrative, but it also plays into a sort of cultural frame mm-hmm. that will sometimes keep bishops and, and husbands privileged on this information and leave wives out of it when the information does matter to the wife.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And I want to be clear on one other thing. I am not equating pornography with infidelity. Uh, a lot of people do think that, and I don't think of it that way. Um, but the issue I have is that oftentimes husbands are keeping information from their wives around their relationship to pornography precisely because they know it would matter to the wife. And I think keeping information that he would want to have is problematic, meaning they would want to have it because it gives them information about whom they're married to.
0: Every time we get these, I always want to, like, I I almost want to create a form (laughs) for submitting questions so we Uh can clarify. When you say infidelity or when you say he's now faithful, what do you mean? Because you had mentioned either, you know, he's not masturbating or looking at pornography or if there's another higher, uh, another level. Right with you right. know some other person
1: there's been and, other infidelity right and the there's other thought
0: infidelity. i was wondering about was whether there was some religious discord some differences in levels of belief or something like that and now he's more faithful like if that that might oh, not be there you know. at all but that could be wrapped into this umbrella term of he's faithful again and the other thing yeah. i always wonder is well, what was? How long has it been like this? How long have you been the low desire partner? She says she wasn't always, yeah. But her husband mm-hmm. had issues with pornography and masturbation. Um, so like, is that a somewhat recent thing? Is that like the last couple of years? Is that the last two decades? Um, mm-hmm. Those kind of details I think would make a difference, and it's just hard to really say much mm-hmm. on the subject without having those, which is why the segment of the question where she says that he's offended by the idea of marriage counselors. I just think that's really unfortunate because that sounds like the right sort of situation where you can work all that out. I
1: would say he's purposefully, he purposefully doesn't like counselors. Right. It's a, it's a position that is very uh, convenient for him. And, you know, I'm not so, I know I sound um, unorthodox in this way. I'm not as concerned, I don't have as instinctive of a reaction to pornography and masturbation when people bring it up. A lot of people want to equate it with infidelity and, you know, a a deep form of sinning. In my read on this question, what I'm responding to the most is the deep entitlement that I feel his pornography and masturbation is an expression of. The entitlement that I think is alive in the way he's approaching the bishop. The entitlement that's alive in the way that he is being sexual. The entitlement that's alive in the way he's talking about not wanting to go to a marriage counselor. It's a, it's a, it's a subjugation that's happening in the marriage that the wife is so unclear. Uh, that, that the wife dumbs herself down in order to maintain equilibrium in that dynamic. And so she's kind of throwing her strength away in a way, as a way of trying to keep peace with a guy who says that's the price of peace or you know of stability in this marriage, and so she's uh caught in a really under functioning position relative to his entitlement and so i this is the kind of person I could easily imagine being unfaithful because that entitlement is that's what it takes is that level of entitlement so um uh, yeah. But then I don't know if that's what she meant or not. But anyway. Right.
0: And the other part about her. So she says that she wasn't always the low desire partner, but now she's feeling disgust at being objectified.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And so I want to know like how comfortable, like, what is this disgust? Is it the disgust of being objectified? Is it the disgust of specific, you know, sexual positions or something like that? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. is it like this kind of revert, is she reverting to like the good girl that doesn't know anything about sex or is yeah. it more of a frustration about the status of their relationship? And right. again, that's something that they could work out in a counselor type situation, but it doesn't appear that they are going that direction because of the husband right. doesn't want it to right. go Sometimes there.
1: Sometimes people have a disgust response. To knowing their spouse is interested in porn or, yeah. or has, you know, erotic desires that are uncomfortable for the spouse. And they're having kind of a, a they're saying that's disgusting, right, because it's outside of what they feel comfortable with. Mm-hmm. But that's not my sense on this question. I mean, that may that could also be true for her. But I think that it's more she's having a disgust response to the constriction of her role within this marriage and the the amount of room that he insists on taking up. So that's my sense. But
2: oh, I did have two questions, follow up questions on that, real quick. Mm-hmm. If we can, um, one question is uh, just for people who might what what exactly do you mean by entitlement, um, espe in this context especially, but maybe in general, um, if if that could be explained a little bit and then my second one was just my instinct on this from reading this question is from the husband's point of view there's a distinctive lack of or fear or avoidance of vulnerability um and that's part of the you know the vulnerability of being seen um in in an action like really being seen in this full context of w- how both of them feel um and and if he's not willing to do something like counseling how can how in a in a home setting can you foster an environment where that vulnerability could come out it may not and it's not someone's responsibility to make it happen but if there's just kind of practical things of like how to well, help Well that's people. not
1: the uh, that's not the way I think about it and I'll say maybe more what I mean yeah. I, I don't I don't think fostering the exposure of this guy's vulnerability would be a step forward Mm-hmm. I think that uh, so. First of all, entitlement is—is is this person, in, in my read, okay with the limited information I have? My my gut, or where I would be definitely sniffing out if I had them sitting in front of me, is—is is that he feel he wants a marriage in which she slides underneath him? Mm-hmm. That it's me and then you backing me up, wife. That's the kind of marriage he wants, and many of us want that marriage. (laughs) We may not be honest about it, but you know, basically the entitlement is this marriage is basically about me, Mm. and you're a good wife by making me feel good, giving me what I want when I want it, not making me go to a therapist and have to confront my own behavior, my own immaturity, my own cruelty, my own entitlement. So it's entitled, and many people prop up entitled people in marriage because they want so much to belong they want so much to feel that they have a place that they will take a very constricted place in order to have a place hmm. which feels like is what she's doing mm-hmm. I don't see it that this guy um, I mean I, re- I really understand and respect what you're saying which is this is a guy who's not comfortable with exposure he's not comfortable with being known he likes control Mm -hmm. Um, he likes dominance it's an immature position Mm -hmm. I don't so and I would imagine he learned this from his own home environment Um, and so it's a very familiar position for him I'm certain Um, but I don't think it's about encouraging vulnerability because she probably is a woman who is tiptoeing around him all the time and trying to manage his feelings at all times it's The problem is that he has made other people responsible for his good feelings about himself rather than functioning like a person that he can feel good about. Mm-hmm. And the problem is that the responsibility, even though he's entitled, paradoxically sits at the feet of the wife. And the wife has accepted that responsibility on some level by not wanting to manage hurt his feelings by taking him to a therapist or having somebody call him out. Mm-hmm. And so she's trying to keep equilibrium by absorbing all these feelings. And it, it's a system that keeps both people functioning at a low level, even though it certainly is very human to do what this couple's doing. This is not an unusual, um, configuration or way of managing a relationship. Many people do this in their immaturity. Mm
2: hmm. I guess then the question is, if they won't go to counseling, is there anything you can do to yes. change? Yes. What,
1: what the, the, she's in the most pain. The hope, the linchpin in this relationship is the woman. She's the one who is holding this system together by accepting the status quo. She also takes a lot of courage to step up and stand up to it. So I'm not being, uh, I'm not talking like this is an easy thing, but if she were to stop accepting the status quo, it would pressure change. Because, you know, I'm not saying she likes the status quo, but she tolerates it. And so it keeps his entitlement and his taking and him taking up so much space in this marriage. He, she makes that possible. So all it would take is her saying, I'm not willing to keep doing this. We won't be having, you know, if you force sex on me when I don't want it, we're done. Um, I'm going to a therapist. You have the freedom to join me or not, but I'm going to get help because I can't keep keep doing this. She, her self-doubt and her lack of self-respect is what he exploits. And she needs help getting a hold of that inside of herself and standing up for her benefit, her husband's benefit, ultimately, and her kid's benefit. And it takes courage. I I really do understand that, but it's a kind of courage that is an expression of love. It's development. And it, so it's not about making room for his vulnerability, it's pressuring him to take more responsibility for himself by her taking more responsibility for her participation in it. And that's what pressure him forward.
0: All right. Well for our next question I think will be a little easier to address. Question number two. Dr. Fife, in a previous episode, you talked about how most women can't orgasm through intercourse alone. I fit into that category, but oral sex, while pleasurable at first, doesn't achieve the desired goal for me. I have noticed that the most effective way for me to climax is through clitoral stimulation at the same time as intercourse, My husband and I have a healthy marriage and sex life, but I was wondering what your thoughts are on bringing vibrators into the equation. Is it something you would recommend for or against and why?
1: So I would maybe just start by saying that it's, you know, most people have a way that it's easy for them to orgasm or that's the easiest way for them to orgasm. Um, For some people it's through vibration. For some it's through really uh, light touch. For some it's through high pressure so it's not unusual to have a particular way in which you like to climax or that it's easy for you to climax and um, people can expand their repertoire of climax and one way to do that is by bringing yourself very close to orgasm through the familiar way and then at that point allowing yourself to shift to, to another way of being stimulated. and um, that can be frustrating because sometimes people will then lose their ability to orgasm or they will then their body will not be able to get enough stimulation through a different way. But that is one way that people can, if they have enough self-compassion and desire, can expand the repertoire of ways that they can receive stimulation because there are a lot of ways that the brain will be able to do that and to achieve the threshold necessary for orgasm. And so people can often start expanding that repertoire. When it comes to vibrators, I would say certainly for some, that's, you know, the best way or the easiest way or the most effective way is with, uh, with a vibrator. And s- some say that once they use a vibrator, it's a little bit harder for them to go back to the other versions of stimulation. But I think there's many that can receive stimulation in multiple ways and it doesn't it doesn't preclude them from being able to receive st- stimulation in a previous way. Uh, one thing that this person might want to try is a vibrating penis ring, which is it allows you to have intercourse, and the husband wears a vibrating ring that you can buy online or even Amazon, and that provides stimulation to the clitoris while having intercourse. And For some, that's a great way to, to achieve that because then you don't have to have you know, fingers and everything in there as well and in addition to having intercourse to be able to get enough stimulation. So that is something that you could try and you can also just get a vibrating wand or something like that. Um, but I don't personally think that there's any reason that's really significant to not use a vibrator if that makes orgasm easy for you, especially if you like the idea of having intercourse in the, in the, and the vibrating penis ring is a good option. Um, I would say certainly, and why not? No problem.
0: I have one, I don't know what it would be, pushback or question or something. Or maybe there's this line of thought that's a concern with, you know, why she's bringing up this question in the first place is that, Mm -hmm. you know, we were evolved or created to have sex with our bodies. And when we bring other things into the relationship to help us have better sex, whether it's, imagery or whether it's sex toys of some sort is this the beginning of a slippery slope and 6 mm-hmm. months or 6 years down the road we'll find ourselves in some dungeon and you know <laughs> <laughs> yeah. going through these contortions in order to feel sexually satisfied.
1: Uh-huh. Yeah, I mean I guess I can appreciate some wisdom in that view which is if I if I'm uh, you know one of the things that Non-Mormons that I've read about who have had a regular diet of looking at porn, who have talked, who, who voiced a critique of the porn industry, is that you do sort of become um, habituated, or you almost need these extra props and so on to have a, that. It can kind of detract ultimately from something that's more natural and more requiring of your imagination and your own. Uh, body in relative to this question, if you didn't want to have a vibrator, I guess I could understand that view and I can understand how somebody might be anxious about introducing something. But I think for most couples, it's just, especially if orgasming without a vibrator is challenging, it's just adding something that is beneficial and that allows you to continue to enjoy your sexual relationship. Um, you know, there's a lot of things in life that are not natural that make our lives better, you know, like beds, for example. <laughs> you know, I mean, just just anything that's any technology, anything that has been created, uh, houses, you know, they give us comfort. And and for some, a vibrator is a perfect way of being able to access their sexuality or get the right level of stimulation to be able to achieve orgasm. And I think if that's you, I think there's no problem in it. It is. I don't think there's evidence to suggest that that's a slippery slope into sex swings and dungeons.
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs>
0: okay, well, that one was a little easier and uh, shorter to answer. But we do have one more question we would like to get into this episode. Um, Laurel, are you up to reading another longish question?
2: All right, here's our third question. Hi, I have started listening to your podcasts and I'm very grateful for them. My husband is gay and this most recent podcast has had some useful insights for me. I would love to hear what counsel you have for LDS gay men who are married or who want to get married but are struggling with intimacy. Most of them end up addicted to gay porn and sometimes even gay sex, but they still want to have a wife and a family and follow the gospel teachings. What counsel can you give them to help develop a healthy relationship with their sexuality? Josh Weed wrote a viral blog post about being gay and married, and he talked about having an enjoyable, robust sexual relationship with his wife. Is it possible for these gay men who thought marriage would fix their feelings that they can get to a place where they can also enjoy healthy intimacy with their wives? Currently, some of them simply service their wife sexually and then service themselves through masturbation. My husband and I are trying to work on our own intimacy, and that doesn't sound like a pattern we want to follow. We have five kids and are done with pregnancy, so there is no pressure to perform, and we have time to work on recovery and trauma healing, and we are not looking for a quick fix. We just want real intimacy.
1: Okay, good. I'm not sure what she means by recovery and trauma healing. I'm not sure entirely what that means, but um, so, I mean, so let me just start with. I mean, first of all, um, I just think it's really important to acknowledge that this is a very tough choice for many gay members of the church. That there's no legitimate way currently to belong to your most instinctive sexual desires and a traditional family and the church. And I think for some, this is a very, very painful thing. Um, because they may believe in the church, very much want to fulfill what those they love have offered to them as the good life, and feeling like that they can't, that there isn't a way to legitimately do it, or there's not a way to belong to themselves and to belong to the church that they love. They can't belong to their sexual identity and the people that they really care about. And so I think it's just a very difficult thing, and I think that we owe... To these church members, at a bare minimum, our compassion for that situation. Because, as church leaders have said, you know, for most people, um, this is not a choice, right? Th- there are, there is a spectrum that many researchers have talked about of a homosexuality to heterosexuality spectrum. And I think there are people that are in the middle of that spectrum that feel, uh, attraction to both uh, genders, their own and the opposite. Um, and I think especially in a church culture where it is, is wrong to be attracted to the opposite sex, that can feel very challenging to even acknowledge in yourself that you have those feelings. Meaning it can take on a kind of charge because it's forbidden. Um, where, and then there's people that are on the end of the spectrum um, and they are clearly homosexual, they're clearly drawn to their same sex and they don't have much flexibility. So when this person's asking this question, you know, is it possible for people to make this choice, I would say probably for some it is and for most it probably isn't, Me- meaning for some who feel attracted to their same sex, it may be possible to also choose the opposite sex. and. For probably most who feel attracted to the same sex, it isn't possible to really choose and desire someone of the opposite sex. Um, and so, as i I can't remember who what general authority said this, but generally, church leaders have discouraged people trying to solve their homosexuality through a heterosexual marriage.. Um, So let me just clarify. Right now I'm speaking, the person was asking both questions of what's the counsel you'd give to gay members of the church who aren't married and then what do we do in our situation? So just speaking to the first part of that question, I think, you know, I, I think that for people like Josh Weed and others that I know, that has been a viable choice to choose a heterosexual marriage. It's been their way of reconciling a pull within themselves and their deep desire to belong to the community and um, to find a way to reconcile these opposite poles. And so I think for some, they are able to make that work, and I respect that choice. I think, um, especially the way that Josh Weed did it, which is, in my understanding, a very open conversation with his uh, girlfriend and and then fiance and wife, that around this issue and her ability to really make a choice for herself, that she wasn't, you know, deceived into a decision, which sometimes happens. So um, so I guess I would never say no one could ever pull that off, but what I would say is it's not a good way to try and solve a homosexual impulse is to try and marry heterosexually. I think that... Um, when I'm working with people around desire challenges in their marriages, that if the desire was never, ever there, okay, that's a much more challenging issue to deal with. Meaning, like, the, you know, the, the saying of, like, this person who gets into a car accident and he asks the doctor, he's like, Doctor, will I ever be able to play the violin? Uh, and when I recover, will I be able to play the violin? And the doctor's like, yes, of course, you'll be able to play the violin. He's like, great, because I didn't play it before. Something like that, you know. (laughs) (laughs) You know, the fantasy. (laughs) So, anyway, that is to say, you know, if you, if you felt a basic instinctive desire towards your spouse, then you get married. And then you have the struggles of resentment and kids and challenges that come into any marriage or including perhaps feelings of desire and attraction to the same sex. If that desire was there in the beginning, I think you can basically choose your spouse. You can basically do what I think most people do when a, mature, when a marriage is mature, is to really make a choice to love, bring their sexuality, to bring their best to their spouse. That's an expression of a mature marriage. But that's not to say that you can choose anyone or that you can choose to bring your sexuality to anyone. And so to this person's question, you know, I don't know where your husband is on this spectrum. I don't know if he just recognizes he has some of that pull within himself, but he clearly is able to feel attraction and desire for you, his spouse. Um, but this pull is sort of unreconciled within him or he hasn't come to peace with it or he hasn't asserted a choice within himself, then I would say, um, then I think there is room for him to assert a choice um, that he may need to sort of self-define around who he's going to be within this marriage. Um, I think if that attraction was never there, and he chose heterosexual marriage as a way to kind of have legitimacy, then I think the two of you are in a much more challenging place because I don't know, from my experience, and I, I'm not here to say what everyone's experience is, I don't know if that's a viable option for him, which is not the same thing as saying, therefore, the two of you must divorce because they think you still have choices to make, but it... Um, I would say that, at best, it's like, how can we care for one another and our sexuality um, and be good friends around this to the best of our ability, given uh, your homosexual desires? If we want to keep our family together, is there a way for us to build some kind of a bridge around that? And these are very imperfect solutions, I recognize. I would say that life um, pressures us up against imperfect choices all the time. And often, a choice in one direction precludes us from a choice in another direction that also matters to us. And that part of living life well is confronting the difficulty of those choices and still asserting a choice. Um, what often happens, at least in some of the people that I've worked with, is there's enough resentment in the position of both people in this kind of marriage, both, you know, let's say the woman in this case, for what she hasn't really been given sexually. She never really felt desired. Um, that she's in a marriage where she doesn't get to ever really feel wanted and chosen. And the husband, just playing to this particular um, example, may feel resentment because he feels like the church and his beliefs have kept him from being able to belong to an important part of himself. And that resentment um, will brew within somebody who doesn't push themselves to, to assert a choice within those difficult circumstances. And that resentment can ruin marriages and people's happiness pretty quickly. And I'm also not saying, just to be clear, that these are easy choices or that I envy people in that position because I think it's a very challenging position. So what are your thoughts or questions?
0: Well, I want to know if you had a couple like this come in, what do you actually tell them? Like if this, if someone came in and they described basically what's described in this question and they're like, what do we do? So they're, you know, a gay man and a...
1: um, I think what I'm talking to them about is just helping them put, really put on the table where they really both are. You know, husband, do you have it in you, do you think, to choose your wife or do you think you really don't no matter what? because she has a right to know that if she thinks okay if we stay married you're never ever going to be able to desire me or you know that you're going to have to like you know imagine someone else in order to be sexual with me then she has a decision to make for herself is that you know do I choose that ultimately as imperfect and and sad as that is is it still my preference to breaking up this family <laughs> Yeah. or not. So th- what I'm doing in a session like that is I'm just helping people confront their hard choices because when people can choose, you know, I had one situation like this and I think he felt very depressed. Very, I mean, th- she was upset, felt a lot of resentment. Um, I think in some ways felt You know, she never would have chosen this had she known. I don't know that he fully knew at marriage either, frankly, (laughs) because I think there was so little room for him to know this about himself. That he, and he married, they both married very young. And then I think as, as he moved into, deeper into adulthood, it became clearer and clearer and clearer to him, um, how much he was attracted to men. And so I think, you know, for him, he had a lot of, feelings of having lost his life and that he had bad choices and that people around him were much more fortunate than him and that he felt condescended to by bishops and so on. And I I think that there was a lot of truth in what he was saying. And so a lot of his difficult feelings were valid. And I think his feelings of depression and suicidality and things that were mitigated by him asserting a choice for himself um, in the context of his poor choices but still this is the choice or the path that I choose ultimately because it's at least asserting who you're going to be. It's about saying this is what I value most in the face of my choices and, um, and allowing the wife the same ability to choose for herself how they're going to handle this hard situation. But again, no walk in the park, these kinds of choices. Yeah,
0: and I'm imagining one of the, the things that go through or a possible scenario is that one or both of them are living this illusion, kind of giving themselves the self talk, I can make this work, I can make this happen, we can get yeah. through this, rather than doing what you you would have them do in your office and sitting down and, and honestly say, you know, is this something that you can do? or that you would prefer to do and, you know, facing that truth within themselves. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And I, and in reference to the couple that I just brought up, you know, I think they both chose, like we don't, I think we're good enough friends and we're good enough parents that we don't want to break up our family. And it's not important enough to us to end our marriage over this, at least not at the point of the kids, um, the, the kids and their level of need. And I think that they were better for having really made a conscious and deliberate choice around that. And maybe when the kids are grown up, maybe they'll make a different choice. But for now, that is the choice that they asserted. But I think they're better for having put it on the table, really looked at it, and asserted a choice for themselves. You know, other people would, would choose differently in the face of putting those choices on the table. So I'm certainly not saying what the right choice is for everybody. Um, but I think the more you, you know, as I always say, the truth sets you free, really confronting your situation and deciding what you believe is really right for you and your situation is the hard work of life and you're better for doing it. It's easier to live resentfully and expecting life to offer you your happiness uh, rather than taking responsibility in the face of an imperfect world. So. Um, so it's just
2: helping people have the courage to do that. So one of the things that hit me is, um, I mean, this reminds me, I, yeah. one of the thoughts that came to me when Brian was talking um, is part of this also, I just know, you know, growing up, you know, Mormon where you have this idea of how things are, quote, supposed to go yeah. and sometimes the the disappointment doesn't even necessarily come from your own circumstances, but the fact that you felt like they were supposed to be something else. yeah um, and and this is something I've heard both from people who are in mixed orientation marriages, but also just people who don't end up living how they thought they were supposed to as a good Mormon person. Um, yes, mm-hmm. is just that that sense of what was supposed to happen robbing the happiness, both the happiness and the struggle, of what actually is and what is happening at the moment. Yes, um,
1: absolutely. Absolutely. Right. I think that it's hard sometimes to face the the reality of a real person on the other side of you and to face the reality of your 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 own desires even and and how that how loving another person and building a life with another person may push you right up against those ideals that are not coming together or having children for that matter and birthing these real people <laughs> with divergent needs and personalities and so on. And, you know, how life is going to challenge and puncture our, our, our simple minded early ideas about how life might turn out. And I think, you know, sometimes we encourage that idea when we talk to young men, the young men and the young women that, you know, follow the rules and it's all going to look like this enzyme picture. Um, and so a lot of people feel disillusioned when that's not the way it's going. And I think that that's a natural part of growing up and a natural part of becoming an adult, um, and spiritually more mature, relationally more mature is to confront the messiness of life and the messiness of loving another person. And by messy, I don't mean that it's ugly. I mean it's just, it, it pressures you, and it pressures you to... One of our theologies that I really love is that we come to know God, right, through living life, through living um, on true principles, you come to know God. In some ways, you think, you know, didn't we have that down in primary? You know, you're just kind of like you learn these ideas about who God is. But you really come to know God by becoming a wiser, more God-like person, a more more Christ-like person. And what that means in effect is pressured and tested through the experiment of loving another person. And so it just punctures our ideals right it just happens all the time you have a spouse that doesn't believe all the things that you believe or you have a spouse whose sexual interests and energy are divergent from what makes you comfortable or you know it's just life is going to pressure you in that way if you're staying awake and you're paying attention to the person you chose under god to love it's it's going to pressure you to mature and to become wiser but it, it's, it's usually divergent from our simple-minded ideals. And I, that's not to say not to have ideals, because I'm, I'm quite idealistic, actually, if you really listen to me. <laughs> I believe in love. I believe in commitment. I believe in the goodness of what people can create. But it's, it's not this sort of uh, simple caricatures of goodness.
0: All right, well, I think that wraps it up for the amount of time we want to spend on this episode. Um, three great questions, two of them more uh, more complex than the other. But uh, again, if you have any other questions, submit them. We have I'll always have a, an email address that you can send the questions to, and uh, we'll try to answer them on the one of these next few episodes. Laurel and Jennifer, thank you again for joining me on the podcast.
1: Thank you. Bye.
0: Bye.